Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Many of you have asked me what I'm going to preach when I get done with Hebrews. I don't know yet. Um, it'll be in the Bible, I guarantee you that. <laughs> but um, sometimes I fall in love with these books and it's so hard for me to get out of them. Uh, but I will get out of Hebrews eventually. But today we're going to look at verses uh, 5 and 6 uh, because I think there's much here for us to think about together this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read. I want to read from two places, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, and then from Philippians 4. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what God can do or what man, what can man do to me? Excuse me. Now turn to the book of Philippians. If Kevin were here, he'd say it's the same author in both books. But Kevin ain't here, so I don't think it's the same author in two books. <laughs> Let's look at Philippians 2, beginning in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how, he, how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do ask today that you would be generous in pouring out your spirit upon us so that we may understand your word, that you would soften our hearts, that you would remove the defenses we naturally have toward hearing the truth, that we would lay aside everything that would hinder us, and that we would receive the word as coming from you, and that it would be precious to us, and that that word would work in us, that it would create in us life and faith and hope and joy. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to preach on the most elusive thing in all of the universe, and it's called contentment. And uh, unless you have really worked hard at being content, it is a challenging thing. Because most of us belong to the cult of the next thing. It is dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default. Not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist, resist it. The cult of the next best thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More. You deserve it. Newer. Faster. Cleaner. Brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit. No down payment. Deferred payments for a year. No interest. 
for three months. It has its own preachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles and admin and pitchmen and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, malls, superstores, uh, online purchasing, club warehouses. It has its own sacraments, credit, debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next best thing central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. So last week I talked about a very uncomfortable subject for some, and it was sex. And it's interesting, in the Bible, and in Hebrews in particular, sex is regarded as sacred. But we're to be promiscuous with our money in terms of giving it away. And so I'm going to talk about money now. If you're here and you don't go to church much and you're rolling your eyes already, that's all you ever talk about. I hadn't talked about money in so long I can't remember. And forgive me for that. I probably should have. But when you look at the writer of Hebrews, he says some very interesting things as we live in the culture we do. And the pagan culture of the time in which the book of Hebrews was written and the context in which these believers who were suffering and persecuting were living was one that was very, very difficult and stood in opposition to most of what the writer was saying. Um, Today, most people would regard as sex as just a means to an end. It's not a holy or sacred thing. You do it with whomever. Money, however, is very, very sacred, so you don't share it with anybody. That's our culture. Money's not that big a deal, is what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying sex is a holy thing in itself, something you don't share with anyone but your spouse. Money's not that big a deal. You share it with whomever. Christians are to be promiscuous with their money, but not with their bodies. Everything has changed in the kingdom of God. And this tells us a little bit about the life of faith and how it changes our attitude toward money, sometimes violently but always vigorously. We're not to love it. We're not to fall in love with money. And how do you know if you have fallen in love with money? Either you love to spend it on yourself or you're always worried about it, so you're never spending it. To either be a miser or a spendthrift shows that you really love money. Somebody says, how do I know that I actually have this life of faith and I've changed my attitude toward money? And it's really, really simple. Are you generous in giving? In the Old Testament, we know that the Old Testament believer was required by law to give a tithe, 10% of their annual income to God's work and to the poor and to the support of the Levites and the priests and those who performed uh, sacred rites. And uh, we know from both pagan and Christian historical texts, from the New Testament and early Christians, and even pagan historical texts, that the early Christians went way beyond the tithe. They didn't just give 10%. 10% was a starting point. And as a result, the pagans around them had never seen anybody be that promiscuous with money. They'd never seen people give their money away in such proportion. Worse than that, they'd never seen people give with joy. 
And here's the reason why Christians don't worship money. Do you know how you worship money? When money makes you feel important or money makes you feel desirable because you spend it on yourself in a certain way, or money makes you feel safe and secure, or in control of your life, then that's when you have a problem with money. You don't have to be rich to have a problem with money. You don't have to be poor to have a problem with money. It's a matter of the heart. But Christians know this. They know that only in Christ am I in control. Only when I lose control to him am I free. Only in Christ am I attractive. Only in Christ do I have power. Money becomes not that big a deal. It loses its holiness. It loses its sacredness. That's the way you can tell that money is being handled properly by you. Most of it see it as a means to fund our idolatries. That which we covet. And it's, it's amazing when you think about it. Not only does the writer of Hebrews tell us not to love money, but he tells us to be content with what we have. I listened to a guy on uh, a podcast recently, and he was talking about that as he had grown older in his life, he now gives 70% of his income away. And you say, well, he probably doesn't even feel it. He's so rich. But what he said was... He lives a relatively simple lifestyle. He, he's not caught up in the kingdom of stuff. He's not caught up in the next best thing. And he's able to give away his resources more and more and more. And it's really not so much a sacrifice as it is a joy because he doesn't have to escalate his lifestyle to be happy with the way God has blessed him. And that's the mark. The way you can tell you're satisfied with the basics and, and, and the lavish and the luxurious no longer have control over you is you're not getting your sense of importance, safety, or desirability anymore out of your money. And that's, uh, that's when you know you don't love money. And that your income grows over the years, your lifestyle stays somewhat the same. The writer is telling us to be content with what we have. And uh, it's amazing that he says that because content is the flip side of covetous. Covetousness. Contentment is the flip side of covetousness. And coveting is strictly forbidden by the Tenth Commandment, as you know. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. What does it mean to covet something? It means to crave it. It means to yearn for it. It means to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. When we covet, we set our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours. John McKay calls coveting a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something that belongs to someone else. I read uh, a quote from Aesop's Fables in which he said uh, the gods had promised a particular man that he could have anything he wanted as long as... Uh, his neighbor got twice as much as he got. 
And so the person was really happy when he heard the gods will give you anything your heart desires, but your neighbor's going to get twice as much. And he said, well, before I answer, let me think about it. And so he, he sat down and he thought about it and he really hated his neighbor. He couldn't stand his neighbor. He was in competition with his neighbor. And so he was agonizing and fretting and torn up inside about figuring out what it was he could ask for. And so what he did was, I've got it. So he went back before the gods and he said this, I want to lose one eye. And his neighbor would be what? Blind. Isn't that the way the fallen human heart operates? When that covetous spirit captures us all. Coveting is an inordinate, ungoverned, governed selfish desire for something now desires in and of themselves are desires and are not necessarily wrong but what is wrong is over desires desiring something obsessively wanting even a good thing obsessively and so the tenth commandment literally forbids discontentment and the writer of hebrews tells us that we are to be content And so I want to spend uh, the next few moments on point number two, learning contentment, because it's something that Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that we learn. And I think it takes a lifetime. Paul even makes this statement that I've learned to be content in any and every situation. He said, I've discovered that deep sense of balance and equilibrium in the face of anything, even torture and death, that I can have spiritual poise, a sense of spiritual contentment. And it's, it's been amazing to me because I didn't grow up in this part of the world. And when I moved here, it, it was amazing to me as I began to look at the culture of Las Vegas and to see how much money people spend on a range of processes, most of which call themselves therapy or something else. It's amazing when you look outside at what people spend their money on trying to attain contentment. Thereafter, and even we are after, that which Paul has found. They are struggling for that deep equilibrium. We are struggling for that poise. We're struggling to be able to face what? Anything. Our bills, our debts, our dates, our calendars. We're struggling because we can hardly face it. We can hardly face our boss or our work or our mothers or our fathers. We can't even find the equilibrium to face that which the Hebrews and Paul himself was facing, torture, execution, incarceration. But Paul was at complete equilibrium, at complete and total peace. Now, if this was just an offer, that'd be one thing. That would be an amazing thing. But Christianity doesn't offer contentment. It commands it. The Tenth Commandment, as I've told you already, is thou shalt not covet, which is the flip side of thou shalt be content. Thou shalt not covet means that you will love God enough. You shall love God enough. You must love God enough. God is saying, love me enough to be content in all circumstances. And it's not just an offer. It's a command. I remember reading of Latimer and Ridley 
two English reformers getting burned at the stake. And Latimer turns to his friend, Ridley, and he says to him, Play the man. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For today, by God's grace, we'll light a candle in England that will never be put out. Now, what kind of condition of heart does that take to be able to say that in that particular life situation? What kind of condition of heart does it take to be able to do that? It, it has to be possible, and that's what I want us to look at as we look at this subject of contentment. Now, before we can understand commitment, I think we have to understand coveting because they're so intertwined. And, and this word covet uh, is, is a word that we don't really use a, a, a whole lot anymore. I, I don't think uh, you, you hear it very often. Uh, only when you come to church. But I think the better way to understand this word, if I had to explain it, is the word want and need. And these are fine words. There are needs, and then there are needs. There are wants, and then there are wants. There's wanting and coveting. And coveting is terrible. Wanting is not. Wanting is good. Coveting is terrible. The Christian distinction, modern people have no way to make a distinction between those two things. They just run them together in their minds because in most people's minds, want and need are the same thing. But I'll put it this way. The difference, difference between coveting and wanting. In wanting, let's say, you're the dog and what you want is the tail. In coveting, the want is the dog and you're the tail. When, we, when the want becomes the dog, you become the tail, and it wags you. Coveting is an inner grasping after things with conviction. I have to have this, or I'm dead. I have to have it. That's because it has you by the nape of your neck. It has the finger on your jugular. It's in charge. And that's the difference between want and covet. And we know in Colossians chapter 3, the Bible defines covetousness as what? Idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. In the opening pages of your uh, bulletin, I included a... a uh, a quote uh, that came from, I think it's David Pallison, and it, it begs the question, what is your one thing? What is the one thing that your heart craves? What is the one thing that you think would change your life? What is the one thing that you look to for satisfaction and contentment and peace? What is the one thing you mourn having to live without? What is the one thing that fills your daydreams, your spare time, and commands your sleepy meditations? What is your one thing? The spiritual reality for many of us is that one thing is not Jesus. And the danger in that reality is this. Your one thing will control your heart, and whatever controls your heart will exercise inescapable influence over your words, choices, and actions. Your one thing will become that which shapes and directs you. Your responses to the situations and relationships of your life. If the Lord isn't your one thing, the thing that is your one thing is your actual functional Lord. 
Here's what you say to yourself when something is your one thing. Life and meaning, life has meaning and I have worth only if I have whatever your one thing is in your life. And the problem of the one thing catalog is virtually endless. Some people are all about having power. Life has meaning and I have worth only if I have power and influence over others. Others is approval. I have to be loved. I have to be loved and respected by this particular person. And unless I have their approval, my life's not worth living. Or comfort. My life's all about pleasure. And if I don't have any pleasure in life, what's the point? Or image, I have to look a certain way. I have to have a certain kind of body. And I'm all about that. And that's where all my time and all my resources go. Or control, I have to have mastery over a particular area of my life. Or dependence, I need somebody there to keep me safe. Or independence, I'm completely free of obligation or responsibility to take care of anyone. Or inclusion, I have to belong to this particular professional group and I have to be in the inner ring. Or achievement, I need to be recognized for what I accomplish. Or prosperity, if I have a certain level of wealth, finance, and nice possessions, then my life has meaning. And I'm okay. Religion, if adhering to my religion code and accomplished in its activities. Or irreligion, if I'm totally independent of any organized religion and have a self-made morality. Or race or culture, if my race and culture are ascendant and recognized as superior. Or a person, I have to have this person in my life or my life doesn't matter. Family, if my children and parents are happy and happy with me and helping, if people are dependent on me and they need me and I can save them and fix them and suffering if I'm hurting there it goes on and on and on it is an abyss it is a bottomless pit that's what sin has done to us and the desires of the heart what the new testament calls the lust of the flesh epithumia thumia is desires epi means over so it's the over desires of the heart and unless i have that i'm going to be an unhappy person and guess what most everybody in the world is unhappy. Are you happy? Are you content? It's been a hard week to think about all this by myself. Now you're getting to think with me about it. <laughs> Tough, isn't it? But that's why... As the Apostle Paul once told us, true contentment is a secret. It's hidden. It's elusive. And Paul says, I have learned that secret. I have learned that secret. It's not obvious to common sense. It's not obvious to sanctified reason. He tells us it's a secret because it's all something we all want. Secrets are something we want to know, and yet they're not obvious. And this is definitely a yearning that all people understand, the desire for commitment, but it eludes us. That's what he means by saying secret. It eludes us. It eludes all human beings. It is a tremendous passion and desire. And a lot of great people have talked about it over the years. And I looked at a bunch of quotes yesterday afternoon just from general people. For example, Mark Twain says, Oh, you don't quite know what it is you do want, but it fairly makes your heart ache. What an honest guy. You want it so much, 
You don't really know what you want, but you're always aching about it. Wallace Stevens, who is a poet, put it this way. He said, even in contentment, I feel the need of some imperishable bliss. What does he mean by that? He wants to hang on to the elusive moment that he thinks he has it. He wants it to last forever, but it never stays. It eludes him. C.S. Lewis put it, as he inimitably does, in his classic phrase in the book, The Problem of Pain, when you stand before a landscape which seems to embody what you've been looking for all your life, or let's say you have a hobby and it's your secret attraction, and often on the verge of breaking through, through the scent of cut wood in the workshop or the clap-clap of water against a boat's side, you've never had it. But if it would ever become manifest to you, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. It is the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our works. While we are, this is. If we lose this, we lose everything. Now, what is it that Twain and Lewis and Wallace Stevens are talking about? It's pretty simple and yet extremely important. We won't commit contentment, but it's always eluding us. Certain things seem to bring us contentment, but this is very important to understand. Most of our problems, most of our distresses, most of our reasons for being upset surround those things in the life that we love the most. You know why? Because the thing we love the most simply arouse our desires for that impossible to define something. They arouse the desire, but they cannot fulfill it. I was counseling one time with a young man who wanted to be married so bad he could taste it. He wanted to be married. I think he thought, if I just get married, life's going to work for me. It's going to have meaning. Everything's going to work. And I tried to tell him 100,000 times, don't put that on any woman. There's no woman alive who can be that for you. And there's no man alive who can be that for you. Neither one were made for that. You will never find it there. You will never find it. If I can just get this or arrive at this point or have this relationship or do this big thing I've been dreaming about. See, contentment has a lot to do with all of your dreams. And sometimes your dreams go to die. And what are you left with? Ashes. Some people think you will... Never have a decent marriage. You will never have a decent career. You will never have a decent friendship until you realize that great friendships and true loves and wonderful careers are dangerous. Why? Because they arouse a desire for this thing Twain talked about and Lewis talked about. They make you happy because they arouse your desire for this thing without it being that thing. And as a result, it's easy to be angry about it as we are going to see in a moment. With the things we love most because they will not, they do not, and they cannot come through. They just can't. And that's why so many people are relationally angry because they're believing the lie and the dream that I pursued you I found you I caught you now do it for me be the thing for me and nobody can be the thing for you they cannot do it 
But you see, it's the things that most give us joy, the things we most want, the things that give us the most bliss, that we get the most furious with. Why? Because they arouse the unfulfilled longing in most. You ever wonder why rock stars commit suicide? You ever wonder why? Sometimes it's good to wonder why they do. It seems like they're on top of the world. It seems like they have everything this world could offer. But here's the thing. Sometimes you never get to your dream and you, you are frustrated and angry and furious at God because your hopes and dreams are not fulfilled. Sometimes you do get the dream and when you get the dream, it ain't all that. You are left empty. I don't have any problem understanding why famous people might arrive at, quote, whatever the top is and be undone by it. Why? Because contentment is a secret. And it's never what we see, but it's underneath. It's behind. It's out there. Why can't we be content? Because that which we are really after is a secret. It's hidden. It's invisible. And it takes years to figure it out. What Paul is saying is, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, where do you get your bubble burst? Most of us say, I know what will bring me contentment, Pastor Tim. If I can get in the right school, if I can find the right job, if I can find the right career, if I have the right look, if I have the right mate. In other words, almost always in the beginning, people don't know that contentment is a secret. It is a sign of immaturity for you to say, I know what it is, I got it, I know what I'm after, I'm on my way, you know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow, till you find your dream. For heaven's sakes, I sang that in high school chorus. (laughs) We generally say, I have my dream, I know what my dream is, and no one's ever going to stop me from having my dream. Now, a lot of people are upset because they take a little more time to find their dream, but they figure out their dream, and then they go for it, and they say, I'm going to be content. This is what it is. But they don't realize it's a secret. Paul says there are a couple of conditions that expose the falseness of that. There are a couple of conditions that explode the myth that contentment comes from earthly things. He says those conditions are twofold, what he calls plenty and want. He says the way you can tell you have the real secret of contentment is how you handle plenty and how you handle want. Now you can go on and on with this subject, but the kinds of people who get plunged in despair enough to think that because they haven't found this elusive contentment often think of suicide And they've discovered that they'll never get to their dream. Something has come up as an obstacle. They realize (coughs) that they're never going to get there. Or people, as I told you earlier, who get there, despair. Because when they get there, they arrive there. It's kind of like the writer of Ecclesiastes talking to us. Look, I know what you're after. I know what you want. And I know what you really think. And I know what you really want, and believe me, I've been down the road, I've lived a long time, I've tried every one of those avenues, and what is it? Vanity, vapor, nothing. 
What do you do if you don't get your dream? Well, most of us become cynics. <laughs> we become cynics. Because people have blocked our dreams. Now, here's what I really think. Most of us never, well, most of us don't get plenty or want. We have our dreams, and we say, yeah, I know what it's going to take to make me a happy person. But most of us never get to the place where our dreams are utterly dashed, and very few of us ever get to the place where we realize our life dream, where we get fame and acclaim, where we've made it, where we have power and money and esteem and position. And as a result, most of us stay in the illusion for a lot longer, because if you get a little bit of your dream, but not enough, you'll never see that it can't satisfy you. Most of us are kind of in the middle, kind of on our way. Well, maybe I'll make it if I can just make a few adjustments. I've had a little bit of a taste of what I really want, and I'm going to hang on. But Paul says, I've learned the secret of abounding, and I've learned the secret of abasing. I know how to abound. I know how to be abased. What happens when we finally grow up? Here's what I mean by grow up. When you finally reach true spiritual and emotional adulthood is when you finally realize you're never going to be happy. <laughs> you don't hear that in church, do you? I mean, if I was on TV, click, the sets just went off. Not happy in this way. You understand what I mean by happy. There is a way to have contentment. But what I'm really telling you is you think, well, if I can just get this, or if I can just make this adjustment, or if I could just get there, then I'd be fulfilled if I can just get these things. Somebody once said, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. When you're physically and chronologically young, it makes sense that you don't realize commitment is a uh, contentment is a secret, that it's hidden, that it's not found in things you can see. It's okay. It's all right. But a lot of us just stay immature for way too long a time, and we don't realize we're never going to be happy that way. That we need an imperishable bliss. We need something more. So what do you do? I'm so happy you asked. Because that's the whole point of being here. Is you go back and look in Hebrews at what the author of Hebrews gives us. Look back at Hebrews chapter 13. I want to read it again for you. Notice that he says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's the answer right there. There it is. And you say, what? You got to learn to live out of the promises of God's word. And what does God's word say here? Well, it says something very, very important. We can be content with what we have, but we have to learn to live a lifestyle. And it is a life of faith. And he says at the end of verse, verse 5, we'll be able to leave this because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And here's what that means. Do you understand how important this verse 
is in all the Bible. Do you understand the promise? If you say, could say, I could never be content with all that I want or need, or I could never be generous with what God has given me. You haven't taken this promise to the very center of your heart. And do you know what it is? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Do you know what that means? There's a negative and a positive side. The negative side is everything else will leave you and will forsake you if you just live long enough. I remember talking to my mom one afternoon, and she seemed kind of depressed and down and miserable. And so I asked her, I said, well, you know, you've always had friends in your life. My dad is gone. I understand that. He's in heaven. And I said, just reach out to your friends. She said, all my friends are dead. <laughs> that, that totally shut that down, didn't it? All my friends are gone. They're all dead. Nobody even knows me or who I am anymore. And I thought she was just having a pity party, but the more I think about it, she might have been right there. Everything, and that's the negative side of this. If you understand it, everything else is going to leave you and forsake you. You put your money into universities, they will crumble. You put your money into your looks, they will fade. You put your money in your clothes, they're going to wear out. You put your money into homes, they're going to fall apart. You can put your money into something that has foundations. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Where do you see, where do you see Jesus saying that to us? On the cross. On the cross, Jesus stayed. He did not forsake us, even though the Father forsook him. He stayed on the cross. He stayed on the cross. Even though the Father forsook him. He said, if I give a lot away... No, I mean, you need to look at him upon the cross and hear him say to you, I will never, never, never leave you. Do you really think somebody who loves you like that is going to let you down? Do you really think how having not spared his own son, will he not also together with him freely give us everything we really need? That's what it says in Romans 8. Or are any of you just selfish and that's the reason why you like to hang on to your money and you're not generous do you want a life of greatness God says look at what happened to my son when he opened his hand and let go of his life look what I did with him look what I can do through him will you open your hand and let go of yourself I won't forsake you. Look at me dying on the cross. I won't. And that is the only one who will never leave you and never forsake you in this world. And that's the imperishable bliss. The imperishable bliss. What our hearts are longing and aching and despairing and grasping after is found in this promise. 
that he is a God with us kind of God. He made us for himself and our hearts are restless, very unhappy until they find their rest in him. I read something by, uh, let me find it, by my old buddy John Newton. He said this, The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to look gay. But when I'm happy in him, December is as pleasant as May. There it is. You're only happy when you're happy in him. You're only happy when you're happy in him. Everything else is unhappy. The only place we can be happy is to be with, connected to, depending upon, relying on, trusting in the only one who ever will never leave us and never ever forsake us. When we're happy, in, that's what contentment is. Contentment is being happy, 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 happy in Jesus. That's what contentment is. One final John Newton quote, and we're done. He says, if I may speak from my own experience, I find that to keep my eyes simply on Christ as my peace and my life by, by far is the hardest part of my calling. It seems easier to deny myself in a thousand instances of outward conduct than it is ceaseless endeavor or to act as a principle of righteousness and power. What he's saying is the difference between obeying rules of outward conduct rather than setting the heart on Christ as our peace and life is our road to freedom and the path to the secret of learning contentment. That's what contentment is. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is deep and sharp and powerful and is able to be a critic of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And we pray that your word will work in us today that which is well-pleasing in your sight, that it will produce fruit in us as we think about it, as we meditate upon it, as it does its work in us. May the seed of life in that word blossom forth and bring back fruit that redounds to your glory. And Father, now, we pray that as we come to the time of returning back a portion of that which you have given us, we pray that we would not fall in love with money, but that we would freely give it to needs you place before our face, and that we would do so with joy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.